0: Jodcast, presented by three PhD students with no idea what they're actually doing, with Emma Alexander, Claire Bretherton, Josh Hayes, Beth Jones, Monique Henson, Niall McCallum and Ian Morrison. The Jodcast, October 2017 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Josh Hayes and joining me in the studio today are Niall McCallum and Emma Alexander. Say hello guys.
1: Hello. Hi.
0: Hi, um, so both of you are new to the JODcast, um, so can you tell us a little bit about yourselves? Emma, please.
2: Hi, yeah, I'm Emma, and I'm a first year PhD student here at Manchester, and I will be studying magnetic fields around radio galaxies.
1: Okay, and Niall, who are you? Hi, I'm Niall, and uh, you may recognise me from two years ago when I was doing my MSc here, but I'm back, and it'll be bigger and better than ever, I hope. Yeah, um, we're, we're still waiting to see that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm beginning my PhD and I'm going to be working on cosmic microwave background. Excellent. So, in the show this time, Monique
0: Henson interviews Dr Federico Urban about bi-gravity and dark matter, and Ian Morrison and Claire Bretherton take a look at what's happening in the October night sky. But first, before all that, here's newcomer Beth Jones with this month's news.
3: In the news this month... The LIGO-Virgo collaboration announce a fourth gravitational wave detection, we say goodbye to NASA's Cassini, and the Arecibo Observatory suffers from some terrestrial interference. On the 27th of September came the announcement of a fourth gravitational wave detection, from only two weeks after the Virgo detector in Italy joined forces with the LIGO detectors, Not only is it the first detection of a gravitational wave with Virgo, but the first using three different instruments, as the previous three events found, were just using their two LIGO sites. The signal was picked up at nearly the same time on all detectors, recorded at 10.30 UTC on the 14th of August, and named GW170814. This detection is the same type of event as the previous three, a merger of two black holes. Again, the signal gives evidence for intermediate-mass black holes, which are not thought to be able to form through the collapse of massive stars. 1.8 billion light-years away, two black holes of 25 and 31 times the mass of the Sun merged to form a single black hole of 53 solar masses. The missing three solar masses was converted to energy and carried away as gravitational waves, luckily for us. The addition of the Virgo detector to the two LIGO detectors, which reside in the US, Is more important than simply confirming the existence of a gravitational wave. Adding a third detector to the team improves efforts to locate the source of the signal in the sky, shrinking the volume of the universe that is likely to contain it by a factor of 20. GW170814 is currently pinned down to 60 square degrees on the sky, a factor of 10 times smaller than any previous detection. There's not only improvement in locating the source, as the three-detector setup also allows the distance to it to be more accurately measured. For each gravitational wave candidate currently undergoing detection by LIGO, a trigger is sent out to a horde of telescopes dotted around the globe, so that other electromagnetic light signals may be picked up from the source. Having a better idea of where to point the other telescopes significantly improves the chances of detecting anything else, and as Fiona covered in the news last month, this will allow us to confirm an event such as the never-before-seen merger of a neutron star and a black hole. Despite rumours and the much-anticipated announcement of such an event, this gravitational wave was another black hole merger, and no signals such as optical flashes were detected. If there has been a detection of a neutron star black hole merger, the LIGO and Virgo teams are keeping very quiet about it. After 20 years of faithful service after setting out to circle Saturn, NASA's Cassini spacecraft took a final dive towards the planet before being torn apart in the clouds on the 15th of September. Launched on the 15th of October in 1997, the spacecraft carried out pioneering work on uncovering the mysteries of the ring planet and its many moons. In 2005, Cassini dropped ESA's Huygens probe into the thick, nitrogen-rich atmosphere of Saturn's moon Titan, revealing unsettlingly Earth-like landscapes. In the sky above, Cassini discovered complex organic molecules, the building blocks of life on Earth, in the moon's atmosphere, and revealed methane seas and lakes with its radar. Enceladus, a smaller moon, was one of the greatest surprises found by Cassini, a second promising candidate to search for life in our own solar system. Fantastic plumes spew into space from the ocean trapped beneath the icy surface, and Cassini was directed to fly through the ejections. The other moons also deserve a mention. From ravioli-shaped pan to spongy-looking Hyperion, we also have Mimas, which resembles the Death Star. That's no space station, it's a moon. Cassini took stunning images of them all, finding six new moons to give Saturn a running total of 62. Towards Saturn itself, Cassini pinned down the properties of the upper atmosphere, finding it to be mostly hydrogen and 7% helium. The disruptive effects of the moons and smaller moonlets on Saturn's rings were also captured by the spacecraft, as it found tiny moons in the gaps and spokes. The 22 grand finale orbits saw Cassini gather important gravitational science and radio science data as it flew between Saturn's rings and atmosphere over the course of five months. Even during its final descent, Cassini refused to stop sending back data as it plunged into Saturn's atmosphere, using its thrusters to point its antenna towards Earth until they lost their struggle whilst falling at 76,000 miles per hour. These will be the deepest ever measurements of Saturn's temperature, magnetic field, and atmospheric conditions. Although this seems like a cruel fate for poor Cassini, it was the only possible use for the last portion of its fuel reserves. Leaving the satellite to orbit aimlessly could one day result in a collision with one of the moons, dropping off any surviving Earth bacteria with it. With prime candidates for life such as Enceladus and Titan, contamination was too great a risk. In the words of ESA's Cassini project scientist Nicola Altebelli, while it is certainly sad when a mission ends, it is also time to celebrate this pioneering journey, which leaves a rich scientific and engineering legacy to pave the way for future missions. Until the recent construction of FAST in China, Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico boasted the largest single-aperture radio telescope at a whopping 305-metre diameter. Made of over 38,000 aluminium panels supported by a mesh of steel cables, the telescope has been active in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, SETI, and sending out messages visible to other civilizations. In day-to-day operations, the telescope is also used to study planets, pulsars, asteroids, galaxies, and even dark matter, The sinkholes in Puerto Rico have provided a perfect place to nestle a giant radio telescope. Unfortunately, Puerto Rico fell in the destructive path of Hurricane Maria last week, with the whole island losing electricity in the wake. Much of the population still remain without power or communications, as gushing rivers, a dam failure, and huge amounts of building damage plague the island. After initial radio silence from the observatory, the staff are now remaining optimistic about the relatively minor damages to the telescope. Officials reported that a 29-metre line-feed antenna, once used to detect mountains on Venus, fell from a platform about 100 metres above the dish, puncturing it in several places. A smaller 12-metre dish was also lost to the storm, knocking about 20 surface tiles loose from the main dish on the way down. Perhaps most importantly, all staff at the site were reported safe after the storm. The telescope remains inoperational for now, ahead of a full assessment of the damage and repairs required.
2: Thanks for that, Beth. Now, Monique interviews Dr. Federico Urban about bi-gravity and dark matter.
4: Hi, I'm here today with Dr. Federico Urban from KBFI. Welcome to the Jodcast. Thank you. Yeah, it's good to have you here. And you've been in Manchester today giving a talk on your research into bi-gravity, I believe. Mm -hmm. Um, Could you start off by telling us what that is um, to begin with?
5: Okay, so bi-gravity is an extension of general relativity where... Instead of having one particle that propagates gravity, you have two particles. So it's a relatively new achievement that's been written down only in 2012.
4: Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
5: So people are exploring the Mm -hmm. possibilities of bi-gravity and see how it applies to cosmology and astronomy and particle physics.
4: And what's the motivation behind it?
5: So people were trying to get a theory where gravity had, instead of a massless field that propagates gravity. So gravity is a long-range force, which means that the um, particle that propagates gravity has no mass, like a photon. So people were trying to figure out if it was possible to write a theory of gravity where the particle would have a mass, like an electron. And it turned out that it was nearly impossible. So people struggled with it for 80 years because of the so-called ghost problems. So every time they were writing some theory with the mass for this graviton field... It turned out that some of these particles that were propagating were so-called ghosts, which means that they had negative energy.
4: Oh. <laughs>
5: yeah. Which was problematic because then everything can decay into a negative energy and the world would end in a second. And...
4: Yeah, but it definitely doesn't sound yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So this was a solution to that problem. Yeah. So yeah.
5: it took, so people were looking at this, how to write this massive gravity theory. And then they realized that the only way was to introduce an extra metric, an extra mm-hmm. particle. Mm-hmm. And the only way is to actually have two. So one with no mass and one with mass. So both of them are dynamic fields. And, what do you mean uh, by that? It means that they propagate, they interact, and mm-hmm. uh, they're not just uh, background or reference. Not mathematical tricks. So if you want to have a massive gravity, then you need to have a bi-gravity.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: Almost. Okay. This is like almost true. <laughs> and you can engineer massive gravity only, but it's...
4: Not very much. Much more natural to have both. Mm -hmm. And so you're saying one of the motivations for it originally came from, for massive gravity originally was looking at the range of the force and stuff. The
5: motivation was purely theoretical. People were thinking, okay, we have a theory for spin two, like Mm -hmm. gravity is a theory of a spin two particle as electrons have spin one half and Mm -hmm. the photons have spin one. And people were just curious. Can we have it massive? And mm-hmm. it turned out no, so people got even more curious why can we have it massive. So, and then it took about 80 years to finally fix it. But it all started in the 30s with Fitz mm-hmm. and Pauli. So in 2012, people managed to write down the theory where there's one field without a mass and one field with a mass. Both of them as spin two, so they both behave as gravity. And that's the theory that we've been playing with.
4: What's your motivation for doing it? That could be a big question or not, I'm
5: not sure. Well, I've always been interested in gravity and extensions Mm -hmm. of gravity. And the original motivation was actually quite funny because some time ago, maybe a year and a half ago, I believe, there was a claim from the LHC accelerator in Geneva that there may be a new particle. Ah. You know, it's been pretty boring because all they found was what we knew was supposed to be there. So they said, oh, look, there might be something at around 750 GeV, so a relatively high mass and then the whole particle physics community jumped on it because they were trying to figure out what it could be and then I thought oh maybe it's not particle physics maybe it's gravity because yeah. I knew about this by gravity and then I thought wait maybe this is a graviton and so I started thinking maybe we can reproduce the signal at the LHC with this mm-hmm. particle. It turns out that it's almost impossible but in the process of working with this we thought wait a minute we can do dark matter with it.
4: Oh and how does that work?
5: Well, because, you know, you start thinking about having a heavy particle, a new heavy particle, and then this heavy particle doesn't work for accelerator physics, but then you have a new heavy particle. And we know that the universe is missing one heavy particle that mm-hmm. interacts very weakly with the rest of mm-hmm. matter. So it's a natural, I believe, a natural yeah. association. You have a new heavy particle, it comes out of this theory. You didn't invent it for that, but mm-hmm. it just works very well for the dark matter program.
4: That's like an interesting story, right? Because a lot of the proposed solutions for dark matter are very much engineered. They're very much (laughs) kind of pushed into it, going, oh God, how do we get this? And so this more naturally fell out.
5: It's an off-spin. I mean, Mm. you know, people could have thought maybe we should add a spin to particle as dark matter. And then eventually they would have come up with the right theory for gravity, the right theory for this extension of gravity. But of course it would have been much more counterintuitive. In some sense, people in theory, they were trying to get this theory right. And then, well, at least we have a new particle. Let's do something with it.
4: That's the motivation. That makes sense. And so you you mentioned a couple of times it's a spin 2 particle, the one massive and one massless particle. What does that mean for our listeners? Like spin 2 rather than, say, spin half or spin 1 or spin 0? In
5: technical terms, it's related to... How many states you can have for a given particle? Like we know that, for example, the electron has spin one half. So the quantum states available for the electron are mm-hmm. spin up or spin down. The internal rotation or angular momentum of the electron can either be spinning in one way, like up or mm-hmm. spinning down, which means that if you use your right hand, for example, you close your right hand and you call this like spinning the way you close your right hand, you call it up and spinning the way you close your left uh. hand is spinning down like mm-hmm. or just, so that's the two states available to an electron. A photon has three spin states, because it has spin one. Mm-hmm. So spin one, you can go from one to minus one, and in, in integers, because spin is quantized in integers. Mm-hmm. So there is one minus one, and in the middle there is zero. So a photon can go like the same, go up, can go down, and it mm-hmm. can have zero spins. And a graviton has spin two, which mm-hmm. means that you have five available spin states. If you have a massive graviton, then mm-hmm. you have five available spin states, and then you can have spin plus two, plus one, zero, minus one, plus two. That's what it means technically. And, mm-hmm. and it's sort of thinking of how many ways this particle can have internal angular momentum. Mm-hmm. How many ways this can internally rotate, which is related to the background symmetry of your theory.
4: So if we think of kind of the, what I would call like the traditional Big Bang story, beginning mm-hmm. of the universe, how does bi-gravity fit into that narrative?
5: Okay, the so the bi-gravity can reproduce most of the traditional Big Bang story. Mm -hmm. So if we have a theory that is by gravity instead of Einstein gravity, then you're able for all of the late universe history, you can reproduce it almost exactly, well, as exactly as we would be able to probe. So as far as that is concerned, the reason we did not that much that is new in Mm -hmm. that theory. I mean, of course, you can always make some differences, okay? This theory Mm -hmm. has a little bit more leverage, so you can try to make a different history, but then Mm -hmm. you don't want to conflict with what we already know about it. And the difficult part is the very early universe, mm-hmm. because in the very early universe, we don't know. There are some instabilities in this by gravity theory at mm-hmm. very high energy, and still work in progress. So people don't really know whether we are able to write down a full history of the universe in this theory, mm-hmm. or whether we need to resort to some other theory that, that would complete it at higher energy.
4: And it's still early days, right? You're saying it's only been around
5: for five it years. It is early days, yes. <laughs> yeah. And the community that is working on it is still surprisingly small because Mm -hmm. there are a lot of cosmologists that are interested in it Mm -hmm. because it's uh, it's like the first obvious natural application of a gravity theory is Mm -hmm. cosmology. But it's still a relatively small community, I think Mm -hmm. maybe about 30 people that really work on it.
4: No, I think it definitely does sound pretty fascinating. And The thing that really struck me was you were saying that there's no conflicts with the universe now on large scales as we see. Yes, exactly. It. Especially if you're looking at it from the dark matter point of view, lots of the other candidates, they make changes to the small scale structure. Yes, yes, exactly. Galaxies and so on. And that's a big debate that's going on. Yes, yes. <laughs> so I thought that that was particularly interesting. As a dark matter candidate in this idea, has dark matter always existed? When did it come into existence? Does it decay? Does it interact? Like what? Yeah, do you, so how much do you know about it?
5: If this theory is right, mm-hmm. then we have a limited amount of freedom as opposed to WIMPs. So mm-hmm. to standard dark matter candidates or to like most of the more popular ones where you have so many knobs that you can turn and to make sure that everything works. So in this case, we have a mass that we can choose and we have this self coupling Non-linear coupling and it turns out that there's only very very limited range of these parameters that we can use so within this range you make sure that the dark matter is produced in the very early universe mm-hmm. with the right abundance and you make sure that it doesn't decay too much so it may decay we actually hope it does decay to some level so mm-hmm. that we can actually see some of the products of it otherwise it will be completely invisible always and uh, forever but it's something that can be arranged, and it turns out that it's a very limited number of parameter space region that you can have so that this model works. So the dark matter will be produced very early in the universe via some mechanism that is called freezing. So as something that I explained a bit in my talk. Essentially, you start with zero dark matter, and mm-hmm. you very hot thermal bath, and then this hot thermal bath is leaking very slowly, leaking mm-hmm. some dark matter particles. So while the thermal bath is cooling down because the universe expands, the amount of dark matter is slowly crawling up because it's leaking out of the thermal bath. And at some point, the universe is cold enough that this leaking process stops. Mm -hmm. It's no longer efficient, so you cannot produce anymore. And this is called the freezing. So Mm -hmm. the amount freezes to some level. And this stays until today or until it starts decaying. And you can show that you can produce enough and then you can also decay slowly enough Mm -hmm. that this model is viable.
4: which gives you that parameter space left. In which
5: case you have a small parameter space Mm -hmm. that you hope to be able to probe. This generation of experiments is already probing quite a bit, and then Mm -hmm. hopefully the optimistic me would say a few years, the pessimistic Mm -hmm. me maybe 10, 12 years. We should be able to actually check the whole of this parameter space and say, okay, this does make sense or this is completely wrong.
4: But, I mean, in the realm of what I, at least I know about theoretical physics, and especially where particle physics and cosmology collide, 10, 12 years to have your theory tested is not actually that long.
5: I know, it is, yeah, it is <laughs> a good. Uh... But, again, I am not an experimentalist, so mm-hmm. an experimentalist might call me out on that and say, no, 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 no wait, <laughs> it will take 30 <laughs> Well... It's still a human life scale. uh, Yeah, exactly.
4: And I mean, some of my colleagues were talking about your talk, and uh, they said, wow, it was testable. It is testable, Because because that's what we need for (laughs) theory, so it's quite exciting to see that. So what are the tests that you're particularly interested to...
5: Yeah, the most straightforward one Mm -hmm. would be the decay. So we know that this dark matter couples to all the particles we know. Mm -hmm. So photons and protons and, well, at the fundamental level, quarks and neutrinos... So it will decay, we just don't know how rapidly that would happen. We have a limit on it because it cannot happen too rapidly because we would have seen it already, but this can decay. And so the way to see this particle would be to look for the decay products. So this particle would decay into two identical photons, for example, or into two identical neutrinos, or two identical electrons, I mean Mm -hmm. electron and anti-electron. And uh, if this particle is very heavy, as we think it is, then it would decay into very, very highly energetic photons or neutrinos. So these particles would start off with a huge energy and they would travel through the plasma, through the gas, from the dwarf galaxy or the center of the galaxy, from wherever these particles are mostly concentrated and then they Mm -hmm. would produce. They travel through and then they make a very peculiar signal where you see in the spectrum that you see from, for example, the Fermi Observatory, which is Mm -hmm. looking at the photons, the high energetic photons that come from the sky. You would see a peak which mm-hmm. is the injection, so the particle that decays into mm-hmm. these two photons directly. And then some of these photons, as they travel, they will lose their energy because they interact with the mm-hmm. gas, like with the electrons, with the CMB photons, the background photons. And then they will produce a shoulder in the spectrum. Okay. Mm-hmm. So okay. you will have the energy here, sorry, mm-hmm. the energy here and the intensity, mm-hmm. like energy on the X axis and intensity on the Y axis. And then you will see like a peak and a shoulder. So this is what Fermi is looking for. It's looking for pieces of the spectrum. Now, the good thing is that if you see some of these photons, which we haven't seen yet, if you see some of these photons, then automatically in this model you know also where you should look for the neutrinos, because the coupling is given, so mm-hmm. everything couples in the same way, mm-hmm. because it's gravity. So you cannot choose, oh, I want the neutrinos, but I don't want the photons. It's mm-hmm. not an option here. So in some sense, this is uh,
4: That's good a I peculiar guess...
5: signature for it. Yeah,
4: yeah. And it also means that say if you did detect the photons but then you couldn't get the neutrinos where you thought they were then yes then you'd have you would go also know. The wrong. And <laughs>
5: yeah, then you would also know that's wrong.
4: So what are you particularly interested in in your field over the next couple of years? What do you see as the next big developments?
5: You mean for this uh in this biogravity gravity business?
4: Um that or more generally uh, yeah. whatever you're <laughs> excited about. I
5: guess. Well, okay, I so. no for this biogravity gravity is still very interesting because there are a lot of other possibilities like exploring mm-hmm. this by gravity in terms of particle physics, which mm-hmm. is completely new because most of the by gravity community comes from gravitational physics and uh, there is very little interaction surprisingly between gravitational people and particle physics people. So there could be interesting consequences for mm-hmm. particle physics if you can play with mm-hmm. this by gravity theory. So that's one interesting thing mm-hmm. to look at. And the other one is what this by gravity can do with all the gravitational uh, waves experiments. So for example, we know that gravitational waves exist, we know that uh, spin two particles exist because mm-hmm. we have detected them. And by gravity introduces one more spin two particles. And in strong gravity systems, there may be a lot more to discover in this field.
4: Yes, yeah, so I suppose you've still got quite a lot to explore then. There is yeah. definitely a lot
5: to explore. One of the challenges is that by gravity being a gravity theory, it's technically
4: Difficult. complex Yeah.
5: because you have a lot of indices that You have to keep track of, and it's non-linear, which means there's no easy way to simplify it. There's Mm -hmm. no easy way to take an approximation and work out some simple solutions first and then increase in complexity until you get a more and more refined solution. Mm -hmm. You have to just find the full solution, (laughs) and it's it's a lot more challenging.
4: Sounds like a lot of work, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. It's coming on the Jodcast, and hopefully we'll have you back in the future.
0: (laughs) Thank you very much. Thanks for that, Monique. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits we just can't quite fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends. So this week I've brought a um, an item uh, where a group of uh, astronomers have worked out whether or not alien civilizations would be able to see our solar system. So uh, we, one of our main ways of finding uh, exoplanets at the moment is using a method called the transit method, which is uh, where we see a slight dimming in a star as a planet goes in front of it. And if we look at this star over time and we see a a very regular dimming, we can determine that there is a planet there. And so what uh, these astronomers have done is uh, they have worked out where in the sky you would have to be in order to see the different planets uh, in our solar system. And they've actually worked out that there are 68 planets uh, around other stars that we actually know about that would be able to see some of the planets in our solar system. They'd be able to detect them if there was anybody on them. Unfortunately, none of those planets are in the habitable zones of Death Star. Um, so the odds are that there is there are no aliens out there looking at us. However, nine of those planets can actually see Earth. Um, so if somehow there is a uh, an alien civilization that thrives on being either far too hot or far too cold, then they could, in theory, detect Earth.
1: And that's nine of those sixty-eight. Nine of those sixty-eight, yes.
0: So this there's a very very thin band of sky uh, in which any one planet uh, basically sort of casts a shadow onto this onto the celestial sphere. And it's any star within there. If, if you if you take the the very old and very incorrect view that we are the centre of the universe, <laughs> um, you can basically say that all the stars in the in the universe are on the surface of a sphere. Um, and so, as we go round the sun, we cast a shadow onto that. And any star that falls within there could if it has a planet theoretically detect us. So
2: what kind of uh, equipment or technology would these aliens need to have to be able to detect us here on Earth?
0: So um they would need to have something very very similar to the Kepler, te- Kepler space telescope um which is uh now well it's it's no longer doing quite it's Limping what...
2: along, isn't
0: it? <laughs> yeah, I think it's now on two of its four reaction wheels. Um so uh, Kepler itself is quite interesting because it's um being It it can only now look in a very particular part of the sky because it's being held in place by uh, solar radiation. As as it rotates out of of place, the light from the sun causes it to rotate back. So we're effectively using a star instead of a
1: gyroscope at this point. And was that the plan, or is that just due to the fact that it's gotten too old to use other methods? So...
0: um, Originally, it had four reaction wheels, uh, which meant that it could orientate itself quite happily. I mean, it still only looked at the same part of sky, but now Kepler's kind of looking elsewhere, and it's doing uh, it's it's in a it's in a phase called uh, K2. Yeah, K2 has had uh, fifteen, no, sixteen different fields that it's covered, um, and these fields actually very nicely sort of uh, sample the space over which the Earth shadow gets cast, which means that they've kind of... They're they're showing that um, there are very few planets that can actually detect Earth, but what they have done is they have crunched some numbers using things called occurrence rates, uh, which are sort of... It's a measure of how many planets you expect to find around any given type of star. And so they've looked at uh, G and K stars, which are uh, stars similar to our Sun, um and they found that there should be around around sun like stars in with- vi- uh, visible magnitudes of less than thirteen so that's pretty that's still a pretty faint star mm. um around stars like that there are about three. Um, Earth-like planets. At
2: least it's not zero.
0: It is not zero, yes. which I think is really exciting. <laughs> um,
2: so approximately how, how far away, um, are we talking here? How, how far out are these stars that might be able to see us?
0: Um, so the, the upper limit that they've put on this is, um, 275 parsecs. I don't actually know, uh, I don't have a comparison well, let me of do that.
2: 275 parsecs. Parsecs. Uh, in other units, um, <laughs> that is, um ooh, almost ten to the nineteen meters
0: okay which is a that lot. that that is let's a put long that way in light years. yeah, let's have it in light years
2: oh that's uh pretty much nine hundred light years okay so, uh,
0: so it's it's still within a relatively small bubble mm-hmm. in our galaxy, so yeah um so that yeah they've been they've been looking to see how many there are uh, so they found three um three plus or minus one. Earth-like planets, um, around sun-like stars that can see us within this 900 light-year bubble.
1: Of course, the issue here as well is that if it's a 900 light-year bubble, then those civilizations are seeing us from 900 years away. Yes. Um, so, good luck saying hello. Oh, yeah. No, but, I mean, this, 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 this is always the
0: issue when it, uh, when, when we're talking about sort of planetary detection. And so, I mean, I, I am an exoplanetary scientist and, Whilst it would be very nice to actually meet and chat to an alien, I always feel like we're kind of more just cataloguing. Mm. Um, uh, so we're we're trying to we're trying to find Earth-like planets quite quite a lot, um, but we don't necessarily.
2: It would be quite hard to have a conversation with yes. uh, anyone that we find,
0: Assu- assuming that they have similar lifespans to our, ours.
2: That's true. That's true. Um, they, but-
0: they 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 we we could be viewed as but may mayflies to mm. them. Mm. And they could have some sort of strange intergalactic civilization mm. that can communicate in well, seconds. I suppose
1: turtles can live for six hundred or so years. So. Yeah, so
0: maybe maybe the universe is populated by turtles. Let's go with that. And yeah. <laughs> this is what Terry Pratchett had cottoned on to a lot earlier it's than turtles us. Turtles all <laughs> the way down. Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, there are in sort of conclusion of this uh we've we found that there are planets or we haven't found that there are planets but we think that there should be planets like earth that can see earth and so perhaps we should start looking for these um and use them as sort of targets for seti uh, searches and start pointing our radio telescopes arecibo the ska when it comes online um we should start pointing these at these um planets when we inevitably discover them as i'm sure we will um because it's not like at all searching for a needle in a very large haystack mm. um and maybe we'll find some galactic friends
2: that would be nice wouldn't yeah. it? yeah
0: so uh that's me done niall what have you got for us
1: so i'm going to be uh taking a look at so the tim peaks spacecraft tour so, as many of you probably know, Tim Peake, uh, was up in space from 15th of December 2015, uh, for about six months. So he's come down, uh, in June 2016. Uh, he was actually the first British ESA astronaut, um, although they, he was not the first Brit in space. That, uh, was Helen Sharman, who, uh, went up a good while before him. But, uh, still, it's no, uh, it's no mean feat, is it? Mm-hmm. Um, Right, so what did Tim Peake do while he was up there? Um, He did a a variety of different things, um, including uh, he did a marathon in space, actually. Um, I think he ran it at the same time as the London Marathon was on. Um, I I struggle to get out of bed some morning, (laughs) so, I mean, getting into space to do a marathon is fairly impressive.
2: Instead of dedication to (laughs) fitness
1: Indeed, indeed. I mean, I don't think I'd be doing that if I were in space. Well, actually, actually,
0: they... um... When they send astronauts up, they have a really rigorous, uh, training routine, don't they? Cause... I believe that's
1: true, yes, because they need to keep in a fairly good shape and also, um, with it being a sort of weightless, you know, gravity-free environment, um, or relatively so. Yeah, um, we, we won't pick uh... you up on pedantry. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, of course, uh, you, you can lose a lot of muscle mass and when you come back down, that, that's obviously bad because you're back on Earth-like gravity and, uh, yeah. Well, good luck I, walking around then. <laughs>
2: I believe they have something like two, two hours a day, uh, every day, that is uh, scheduled for them to uh, exercise. You know, various uh, cardiovascular and uh, strength exercises mm. to make sure that they uh, they limit the deterioration. I think that, they uh, have some
1: pretty nifty uh, treadmills, which you mm. kind of get harnessed into yeah. in some way uh, yeah. to. Uh, well, Stop you floating yeah. off. <laughs> well, no, because surely you could just lift your legs up and just Indeed. it keeps going, and yeah. uh, they'll never know if you didn't actually run it because the treadmill's moved. It's <laughs> like, yeah, I did a marathon. I swear, I swear. No, yeah. I totally believe. I genuinely just to just to put this in out there, I do believe Tim Peake actually did do the marathon. So but, do know. I, because I, I think there's video footage of it. There is. Yeah. Um, they how, kept an eye on his feet, yeah. I think. So. How do
0: you, how do you lift weights in space and do things I, like that? I it,
2: assume it's more, um, resistive, uh, bands that you can pull. Maybe. Oh, yeah. Uh, so rather than using weight, use, uh, <laughs> stretching.
1: <laughs> mm, indeed, indeed. So, um, right. So back to the, back to the spacecraft. So it was a Soyuz uh, spacecraft that he's come down in. Um, for those who want to know the model, it was a TMA model. Um, and, uh, this spacecraft has been in the, uh, Museum of Science and Industry, I believe, in London, or is it just... No, it's just the Science just Museum the Science in London. Museum. Well, You're showing yourself up I to am. never have I been am. there. Well, <laughs> I'm, I guess I'm just thinking of the Manchester one, since we're here, so. <laughs> um, but it's been there for quite a while now, since uh, 2016, but they're finally going to be taking it on tour around the UK. So sorry to our worldwide listeners but you might be missing out on that unless you fancy a trip to uh, sunny old Brittany. That's going to be uh, doing a, a pretty big tour. It's got a, quite a few different venues that it's going to be hitting. Um and there's actually going to be the chance for um a number of uh, school outreach programs uh, to go and visit them as well. Um and it's also open to the public. There's actually going to be it's it's in line with samsung and they're going to do a vr experience uh so you can vr to what What? so so essentially um when tim peak did his descent obviously it's a fairly scary thing dropping in from space i should imagine Uh, i I
0: do that all the time
2: (laughs) dropping secretly an alien he uh commutes in every day yeah he actually
1: comes from one of those three of 68 planets (laughs) yes exactly. Uh, (laughs) 900 year commute But yeah, so uh, this VR experience will essentially give you a three D, three hundred and sixty degree view um, of falling from space in a Soyuz capsule, which uh, I imagine would be quite exciting. So, have
0: they? Did they
1: actually record
0: Tim Peake's descent from the from the capsule, or is it a simulation?
1: Um, I, I don't know that off the top of my head. I think it was, I presume it's a simulation, but I, I imagine they have got recordings also. Yeah, I um, I, I feel
0: like if you're gonna, if you're gonna say, come and drop from space, I'd, w- I'd want to actually drop from space.
1: That is <laughs> true, uh... that is true. Um, but yeah, I don't actually know that off the top of my head, but I'd like to think it's the real thing, but it may well be a simulation. Um, no. uh, so yeah, that's, uh, that's... Seems
2: like a good, uh, good outreach opportunity going on a, on a tour, science tour.
1: Yes, I, I imagine so, like, it would be really cool for a lot, to, so there's a load of, uh, schools which are getting involved in this, I believe. Um and in fact, actually, so, I've, I've, I've alluded to the fact that Tim Peake did a marathon while he was in space, I mean, that wasn't all he was doing up there, he did a lot of science too, and, um one of these was in line with a load of schools, so that's linked to this outreach opportunities, but, um where he took a load of seeds of, uh, of rocket, actually. Oh my god. Oh, that is awful. <laughs> So um, yes, he took Rocket into space. Um, not just the rocket he was in; he took Rocket in the rocket into space. And yep, I'm with you. Yeah, <laughs> <are> following. <laughs> and then had those up there with him for six months. Brought the seeds back down. They were distributed to these certain number of schools, which I don't actually know what were. Was, sorry, uh,
2: about, uh, a few thousand, eight eight thousand or something like that. Okay, so sure.
1: let's not name all of them because that will take a while. <laughs> um, and um, so he took them. Um, back down, and I believe they grew them and compared their growth to seeds which had not been in space.
2: Yeah, I think there was a uh, slight uh, tendency for the seeds that had not been in space uh, to grow slightly better.
1: Hmm, Ironic, given Mm. the fact it's rocket. uh... Yeah.
0: um, Have have they got any ideas as to why it was, um, why they've not grown particularly well in space? Like, is it Exposure to cosmic rays, or
1: um, mm, I guess you're getting the full whack of the solar radiation, right? Yeah, uh,
0: that that is the that is a scientific phrase as well. Yeah. It's um one whack is equivalent to what yeah. three three hundred
1: joules. I if think if it isn't, then it is now. Yeah, no, you heard it here first. <laughs> um, apparently,
2: the uh the the, the main effects that the thought might affect the seeds um, were vibrations during launch, uh, temperature fluctuations, uh, cosmic rays, and microgravity. So this this has shown that uh, you know even if there has been a a slight difference in the seeds that flew in space and the seeds that stayed on Earth, um, because the seeds still did uh, germinate and grow, um, then this hopefully has good um, implications for potential human exploration going into space and uh, growing growing plants out there.
0: Well, going going into space and then coming back and growing plants on Earth again.
2: Well, that's true. That's true. I think I think there are other experiments on the ISS where they are growing plants. Yeah, um, to see how they fare in uh, the uh, the conditions there.
0: Okay, right. Well, um on the subject of space yeah. plants, uh um, we have one remaining odd and end.
2: So, uh I recently found out about uh, something called moon trees, uh which are not sadly trees on the moon, uh that would be I think very newsworthy uh finding to make. Um but uh yeah, so, in space, eh? exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um so these moon trees um are originate from seeds that went on one of the Apollo missions, so Apollo 14, to be precise, which was launched on the 31st of January 1971. And uh, on this um, mission, the, the astronauts took with them um, some seeds uh, for various different kinds of trees. Um, so in total, they did 34 orbits of the moon, um, spending about two weeks in space, and then they were returned to Earth. And many of them were planted around America. Um, so, for example, um, there was one at the Kennedy Space Center, um, a sycamore seed that was planted in 1976, and um, the this this um, seed that had been into space grew successfully into a tree and was there ever since. Unfortunately,
0: oh no uh, yes I, uh,
2: <laughs> the the reason why these moon trees have been in the news recently um is um, obviously it 's been a hurricane season recently. Um, I think we heard from Beth earlier about um, the the damage suffered to the the Arecibo observatory um, but uh, the the hurricane season has taken another victim, and that was the the sycamore tree that was standing at the Kennedy Space Center. Rip. Yep. Um, um a tree a tree that had been into space, well, its seed had been into space and had uh stood for uh forty years. Um
0: I mean, I mean that's well. that's a fairly long time to stand. I'd that's want to true, sit yeah. down after that, yeah. but it's,
1: yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. Maybe it just needed a lie down.
0: <laughs> a yeah, rest. maybe. Yeah. Have they um so have they got uh done done any rescues? So like I mean I'm you can quite often like take cuttings and things from trees. Though. Yeah, they... so
2: that's, that's another interesting thing about these moon trees. So, um, so actually they, they're not very well documented because, um, they were originally taken up as a, uh, as uh, an experiment basically. And, but the prob, there was a problem, um, I think the, um, they were a, uh, the, the capsule that they were in uh, was was the seal was broken so they were exposed to the vacuum so they um i think they abandoned the idea of doing a, a rigorous scientific experiment with them um, and so so
0: the the seeds themselves were actually in the vacuum of space and survived yes and, yes
2: yeah uh, there was for four, 400 to 500 of these seeds approximately um, oh. that uh yeah that
1: suggests there may be more than just that one tree
2: well exactly so um most of them ended up um, around um uh, the United States i think uh the southern and, and western um states mostly um but because it, the 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 idea of a rigorous scientific experiment with them was abandoned they're not actually very well documented so we, the, there is the, the a known location of, of, of many of these trees and uh, in fact they have a there's a special moon tree website that you can uh, search for on the internet if you're <laughs> Interested in knowing where all of these trees are.
0: I don't know, moon tree is, yeah, you might want to Google that carefully. Maybe,
2: I feel. possibly, yes. <laughs>
1: um,
2: but, um, yeah, um, so we know where some of these trees are. Um, if anyone has any information um, about uh, other potential moon trees, then there's an email address um, that you can contact if you uh, think you, you know where uh, another one of these moon trees are. Um, so,
1: what's oh, the oh. possibilities of moving one of these moon trees back to the Kennedy Space Center? Well, an uh, um, possibly.
2: Well, and another thing that they've done actually is there there exist some half moon trees. Oh,
0: uh, half moon. Yeah, half so, moon. So, so they <laughs> cut them down. So no, so
2: so no, so the, these are are um, trees that have originated from the the seeds or cuttings of the original moon trees. So there's now a second generation of these moon trees about. Okay. Okay.
0: So, so, so it's a half that's waning, as opposed to waxing, and they're becoming more like moon trees.
2: Sure. <laughs> sure.
0: <laughs> yep. That's fine, Emma. Just nod at me. Yep. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um,
2: so, yes, um, there are there are things called moon trees, and I, I found that really interesting.
0: Excellent. We have now Ian Morrison with this month's night sky.
6: The night sky for October 2017. Well, as the nights draw in, one will still see that rather lovely part of the heavens containing what's called the Summer Triangle, Deneb in Cygnus, Vega in Lara, and Altair in Aquila. Although it's gradually moving westwards, as it gets dark earlier, we still see it fairly high in the west after sunset. Moving round towards the south, not such a bright region of the sky in terms of the stars, but there is the square of Pegasus, the upturned horse, the winged horse. Starting at the upper left star Alpha, Rats, which is actually Alpha Andromedae, if one moves a little bit up to the left, the first bright star. Curve round a bit more to the second bright star, and then turn right through 90 degrees to a third star. And just the same distance beyond it, you should spot the great nebula in Andromeda, M31, the nearest giant galaxy to us. Above Andromeda is the constellation of Cassiopeia, the W-shaped constellation. If you take the lower right V of the W, it actually points down towards Andromeda. It gives you another way to find it. Rising over slightly to the north of east, you might spot a yellow star. It's Capella, the brightest star in the constellation of Auriga. And below it is the constellation of Taurus. And you should spot the lovely open cluster, the Pleiades, rising in the east. And below it, the Hyades cluster. The brightest star you see in the Hyades, or in that direction, is in fact um, Aldebaran, but actually it's a red giant star about halfway between our Sun and the Hyades cluster. But what about the planets? I have to say it's not the best month for observing planets, but let's have a go. Jupiter might just be visible for the first few days of October, very low above the west-southwestern horizon after sunset. It passes behind the Sun on October the 26th, to become visible again in the pre dawn sky in mid November. Saturn can be seen low in the southwest during twilight this month, dropping down towards the horizon a little more each week. Shining at magnitude plus 0.5, it sets around three hours after the sun on the first, but nearer two hours by month's end. It's moving slowly eastwards in Ophiuchus moving closer to the boundary of Sagittarius, which it will reach on the 18th of November. This month, Saturn's rings reach their maximum tilt to the line of sight of 27 degrees, and it's a real pity that Saturn is so low in the sky. Sadly, this will not improve for quite a few years as Saturn moves slowly through the lowest part of the ecliptic. Mercury passes between us and the Sun, that's called superior conjunction, on October the 8th, so will not be visible this month. Now Mars has become a morning object at the start of its new apparition. Initially lying in Leo, it moves into Virgo on the 12th of the month and still not really easily seen in the pre-dawn sky has a magnitude of plus 1.8 and an angular size of 3.7, increasing a touch, arc seconds. So no details will be seen on its salmon pink surface. As the month progresses, Mars rises higher in the sky before dawn, and as described in the highlights, flirts with Venus at the beginning of the month. Well, Venus is now moving back towards the sun in angle, again visible in the east before dawn this month, rising about two hours before sunrise at the start of the month, close to Mars. Its magnitude remains at minus 3.9 during the month, as its angular diameter shrinks from 11.2 to 10.6 arc seconds. However, at the same time, its illuminated phase increases from 91 to 96%, which explains why its magnitude doesn't change. By month's end, Venus rises just an hour and a half before the Sun, and binoculars might well be needed to spot it low above the eastern horizon, but of course, please do not use them after the Sun has risen. Well finally, what about the highlights? October is a good month to observe both Neptune and Uranus with a small telescope, Neptune came into opposition, that's when it's nearest the Earth, on the 2nd of September, so will be well placed to spot this month. I provide a star chart on the Night Sky page of the Jodrell Bank website, just search for Night Sky Jodrell and you'll find it. Its magnitude is plus 7.9, so Neptune with a disk of just 3.7 arc seconds should be easily spotted in binoculars, lying in the constellation Aquarius as I try and show on the chart. It rises to an elevation of 27 degrees when due south. Given a telescope of 8 inches or greater aperture and a dark, transparent night, it should be even possible to spot its single moon, or giant moon, Triton. Now Uranus reaches opposition on October the 19th, so it's visible essentially all night. It'll be highest in the sky in the south around midnight or so, shining at magnitude 5.7, with a disk 3.7 arcseconds across. It's lying in Pisces, 1 degree and 18 arcminutes up to the right of Omicron Pisces, as shown on the chart on the night sky page. Its turquoise-green colour should be seen in a small telescope, and it will be easily spotted in binoculars. On October the 5th, Venus and Mars are just a quarter of a degree apart in the eastern sky before dawn. In the first two weeks, Saturn, we can see it in the southwest during the first part of the month. So after dark, we'll have our last good views of Saturn, this apparition. Its rings, as I've said earlier, are at their widest, inclined at 27 degrees to the line of sight. On October the ninth, late evening, the moon closes in on the Hyades cluster. It'll be rising in the east along with a waning moon. On October the 17th before dawn, you may spot Venus and Mars below a thin crescent moon. And that'll be a waning moon as well. If we see a thin moon in the west, it's a waxing moon. One in the east, it's a waning moon. So, on October the 24th, after sunset, Saturn will be seen lying below a thin waxing crescent moon. Although by that time, Saturn's going to be very low above the horizon. And finally, something to look at on the moon. Best seen just before third quarter, which is around October the 11th, Mons Piton is an isolated mountain located in the eastern part of mare imbrium southwest of the crater plato and west of the crater cassini it has a diameter of 25 kilometers and a height of 2.3 kilometers its height was determined by the length of the shadow it casts and that can be easily seen at that time of the month of the lunar month cassini is a 57-kilometre-diameter crater that's been flooded with lava. The crater floor has then been impacted many times, and holds within its borders two significant craters, Cassini A, the larger, and not surprisingly, Cassini B, the smaller. Well, we have longer nights. I do hope you have some nice times observing the heavens.
0: Thanks for that, Ian. and for our Antipodean listeners, here's Claire Bretherton with the night sky where you are.
7: Cura and welcome to the October Jodcast from Space Place at Carter Observatory here in Wellington, New Zealand. We're really noticing the lighter mornings and evenings now as the Earth continues its orbit around the Sun, and we move closer to our southern hemisphere summer. By the end of October, the Sun won't set until around 8pm here in Wellington. As we leave Jupiter behind on its outer orbit, it's slowly disappearing from our skies. It still sits low in the west at the beginning of the month, setting as twilight ends, but by mid-month it will be lost in the sunset. Saturn is now our best bet for evening planet viewing, sitting midway up the western sky after dark. A little below and to the left of the planet is Antares, or Rehua, marking the heart of Scorpius, which we call Tematua Maui, the fishhook of Maui, here in New Zealand. October is a good time to look out for the zodiacal light, a triangular glow visible in the west after sunset in a clear dark sky, tilting up towards Antares. The zodiacal light is caused by sunlight reflecting off dust along the plane of our solar system. This plane is marked by the ecliptic, the apparent path of the sun across the sky, which runs through the constellations of the zodiac. At this time of year, the ecliptic makes a steep angle with the horizon, making the zodiacal light easier to observe. Whilst not easily seen with the naked eye, Neptune and Uranus are also in our evening skies, with Neptune in the constellation of Aquarius and Uranus in neighbouring Pisces. Uranus reaches opposition on the 20th of the month, when it will be directly opposite the sun in the sky and overhead at around 1am, now that we're observing daylight saving. At magnitude 5.7, it is just on the edge of naked eye visibility but with binoculars should be easy to spot. A small telescope may reveal it as a disk with a greenish hue. Just to the north of Pisces is the constellation of Pegasus, the winged horse, which appears to leap across the northern horizon in our late evening sky. Pegasus is easy to spot by the great square of stars that makes up his body. The brightest star in the constellation is the reddish star Epsilon Pegasi, marking the horse's muzzle. This star is commonly known as Enif deriving from the Arabic word for nose. Epsilon Pegasi is an orange supergiant, around 12 times the mass of the Sun, and with a radius some 185 times larger. Nearby, to the bottom left of Enith, and visible in the same binocular field of view, is the globular cluster M15, one of the oldest and best-known star clusters in the sky, with an estimated age of around 12 billion years. The cluster is located around 34,000 light-years away, and measures 175 light-years across. M15 is probably the most densely packed globular cluster in our galaxy, with half of its mass concentrated within 10 light-years of the centre. It has been suggested that this massive concentration of stars may be caused by a rare type of supermassive black hole in the cluster's core. With binoculars, M15 will appear as a fuzzy star, whilst a medium-sized or larger telescope will reveal individual stars, particularly towards the outer regions, appearing as chains and streams radiating out from the core. M15 also contains the planetary nebula P1, the first to be found within a globular cluster. At magnitude 15.5, this is a faint object, and a telescope with an aperture of at least 300 millimetres would be needed to observe it. On the opposite side of the sky, the Southern Cross, or Tepunga, sits low in the south-southwest, its long arm pointing up across the sky to Akanar in the southeast. east is at the tip of the constellation of Eridanus, the river, and is also known as Alpha Eridani. It is the brightest star in the constellation and the ninth brightest in the night sky. It is a hot blue main-sequence star, around seven times the mass and over 3,000 times the luminosity of the sun. The traditional name Akanar derives from the Arabic phrase al-Ahir al-Nah, meaning the end of the river. Although interestingly, this name was once given to Theta Eridani, now known as Akanar, which was the brightest star in the constellation visible from ancient Greece. Akanar spins on its axis extremely quickly, completing one rotation in just over two days. This high rotation speed gives the star a flattened shape, with the diameter of its equator over 50% greater than that of its poles. Infrared observations from the Very Large Telescope in Chile have also identified a smaller companion star, with around twice the mass of the Sun. The two are extremely close, with a separation of just over 12 AU, slightly larger than the distance from the Sun to Saturn, and orbit once every 14 to 15 years, although the highly distorted shape of the primary makes these numbers hard to determine. Below Achenar, just above the south-southeast horizon, our second brightest nighttime star, Canopus, twinkles colourfully. The two make an almost equilateral triangle with the southern celestial pole, the point in the sky directly above the south pole of the Earth, about which the whole sky appears to rotate. Another easy way to find this is to put one hand on Achenar and a second hand on Gamma Crucis at the top of the southern cross, and clap them together in the middle. Between the southern celestial pole and Akna and above Canopus, you may be able to spot two small fuzzy patches of light, easily seen with the naked eye on a dark moonless night. These are the large and small Magellanic Clouds, two small irregular dwarf galaxies that neighbour our own. Whilst these galaxies are much smaller than the Milky Way, they still contain billions of stars. The Large Magellanic Cloud, or LMC, is the lower of the two and is located 160,000 light-years away. Through binoculars or a small telescope, you may be able to spot a number of young star clusters visible as small patches of light. The LMC contains one of the largest and brightest star formation regions known, called the Tarantula Nebula, or 30 Doradus. Spanning around 600 light-years across and covering 13 arc-minutes in the sky, the Tarantula Nebula contains over 800,000 stars and protostars and is the most active starburst region identified within our local group of galaxies. If it were placed at the same distance as the Orion Nebula, it would be so bright that it would cast a shadow here on Earth. The star formation activity within the Tarantula Nebula began a few tens of millions of years ago and some of the largest and brightest stars born within this region have already reached the ends of their short lives. In February 1987, supernova SN 1987A was discovered in the outskirts of the Tarantula Nebula by astronomers at Las Campanas Observatory in Chile, and independently by prolific amateur astronomer Albert Jones here in New Zealand. This supernova was the closest since the invention of the telescope just over 400 years ago and provided a unique opportunity for astronomers to study such an event in unprecedented detail. Reaching a peak magnitude of around 3, SN 1987A was easily bright enough to spot with the naked eye. Smaller and more distant at around 200,000 light-years is the Small Magellanic Cloud, or SMC. The large and small Magellanic Clouds are gravitationally bound, and have a bridge of gas between them showing evidence of tidal interaction. To the top right of the SMC, you may spot a faint fuzzy star. This object is not actually associated with the SMC, but is a beautiful globular cluster called 47 Tucani, or NGC 104, located just a tenth of the distance away on the outskirts of our own galaxy. At around magnitude 4.1, it is the second brightest globular cluster in the sky after Omega Centauri, and can be easily seen with the naked eye. With binoculars or a small telescope, it is a wonderful sight, revealing a densely packed central core, whilst a larger telescope will start to resolve some of its millions of ancient stars. At the far end of the long winding river of Eridanus is our summer constellation of Orion the Hunter, with bright blue Rigel, the first star to rise after around 11pm mid-month. Below and following around an hour and a half later is stunning red Betelgeuse, marking the Hunter's shoulder or armpit. We'll be exploring this part of the heavens in much more detail over the next few months as it moves into our evening skies. But this month we turn our attention to the constellation in the morning skies, the best time to see the Orionids meteor shower, the radiant of which lies a little below and to the right of Betelgeuse. The Orionids peaks around the 21st of October, when the Earth passes through the trail of dust and debris left behind by Comet Halley. The shower can reach rates of 25 meteors per hour, But from the latitude of New Zealand, around 10 per hour is more likely, with the radiant below the horizon until the early hours of the morning. The best time to look is in the hours before dawn. Try looking around 20 degrees away from the radiant, so the areas from Taurus around through the top of Orion to Canis Major are probably your best bet. Whilst the meteors may be few and far between, they also tend to travel quite long distances on the sky, and sometimes leave persistent trails of ionized gas behind them, That can last for several seconds with a new moon on the 20th just before the peak leaving us with nice dark skies you should have a good chance of Orionid spotting this year. Wishing you clear skies from the team here at Space Place at Carter Observatory.
0: Thanks for that Claire and now on to the feedback. We've, uh, had a tweet this week, uh, or this month from Mickey Habrin who says that, um, they love, uh, they love how many Australian accents turn up in interviews on the Jodcast. And I, I have actually noticed this in, um, in our department. There are a lot of um australian new zealand people uh, especially within the uh pulsar group
2: yeah i I just don't understand why if if you if you're living in australia why would you come to manchester with it being so gray and miserable here a lot of the time
0: i guess
1: if you get sick of the sun maybe a bit of rain's quite nice
0: yeah no i i I burn very very easily so i spend most of my time indoors in a cave (laughs) um and i
1: thought your cave has doors that's Quite yeah, nice, so.
0: well, it's, I mean, uh, I have some level of civilization. <laughs> I, I'm like a hobbit. I
1: see. Uh, they, see. Li- they
0: basically live in caves. Don't Essentially, they? well, holes, but I holes guess. Holes, caves. Yeah, I mean, a, what, a what, what is a cave semantics. but a, a hole in some rock? That's true. That is true. Uh, you can really tell that we're not geologists. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and if you want to get in touch with us yourselves, uh, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net
2: or on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash jodcast.
0: Or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash Jodcast.
2: Or Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash Jodcast.
1: And don't forget that you can send us posts. The address is on our website. We've got thanks to give to Dr Federico Urban for the interview. Uh,
0: the editors uh, were Damien Trin, George Bendo, Tom Hillier and Tom Scragg. The producer was Naomi Asambra-Frimprong. Until next time... Jod
6: on! on!